Romans 8:14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy or worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of God. Of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then we'll skip to verse 28, which also, in these past this a few verses, speaks of this final transformation, this final glory that we will receive, but states it in a different way. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified the reading of the word of God. Let us pray. Lord God, open up our eyes to see your truth, we pray. Soften our hearts to receive it. Give us eager minds, even now, Lord, uh, to hear the truth of your word. May it change us. May it delight us. May it cause us to walk in love and purity. For Jesus' sake, amen. At the end of our... uh, At the end of our... Worship, we have an announcement about our new ministry called Kids Hope. And when we were hearing about the ministry of Kids Hope, we heard one example of a little boy who had met with his mentor for just about 10 minutes, the first meeting they were uh, to have. And it was interrupted, it was supposed to be longer, but it was interrupted because of a school function. Well, a little while later, the teacher came back and spoke to the man who was the new mentor, she said, what, what took place in here a while ago? Of course, he was a little defensive, you know. Well, well no, I, I just told him that we, I was going to be his friend and we were going to meet together and, and we were going to work through some school and I, and I was going to just love on him. She said, this little boy has never sat through a program ever at this school and he's sitting through a program right now. 
What was it? It was hope, wasn't it? Hope sprang up in this boy's life suddenly. That there was a man that was committed to him. A man that was interested in him. That was going to love him. We hope has incredible power, doesn't it? I was driving to this family conference a couple of weeks ago and I actually drove through these cornfields that were just dried up, brown. And the whole crop looked like it was, it was gone. And that's just how we will be if we don't have the hope and encouragement of God's Word. We, we will just dry up and turn brown. We have to have this strong sense that God will continue with us no matter what. That He will love us no matter what. That it is certain, that it is powerful, that it will overcome everything in our lives eventually. That He is committed to us. We, we must have that hope or we'll look like that field. That's why God constantly irrigates His people with hope in the Scriptures. When He plants us by the Scripture, He, he plants us by waters of hope. For instance, just later in Romans chapter 15, this very book, you can turn over to chapter 15. He says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Notice, whatever was written was to give us hope. So the scriptures are always Seeking to bring about this hope. The scriptures are like a rice field flooded with hope. And you cannot step into that field without being up to your knees in hope. That's what it's about. It's about hope. No surprise then later in this very chapter 15. He pronounces this wonderful benediction from the God of hope. That means the God who creates hope. The God who nourishes hope. The God who enriches us with hope. Notice what he says in verse 13. The God, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Or the NIV says to overflow with hope. He pronounces this blessing on every one of you. That each one of you can be like a bucket that has so many blueberries, every step you take, they're just spilling out of it. That's how your life can be full of hope. That's the very pronouncement of God upon you, that you would have that kind of hope. And Romans 8, this chapter that we're in, is one of the great chapters in all of Scripture about hope. This God of hope, these Scriptures of hope, and here's one of the great chapters of hope. In this chapter, Paul goes after hope like a border collie would go after a frisbee <laughs> or like Travis Heim would go after a frisbee, um, <clears throat> though he doesn't catch it in his mouth. And I think he could if he wanted to, but <clears throat> I've just heard tales of how he can do that. But right here in the midst of teaching us about our sonship, he an intimacy with God, see, in verses 15 and 16. He says in verse 17, if you're sons, then you're heirs. As we saw last week, he won't let us think about being sons without drawing out 
the rich hope that this should bring us. You see, immediately, let's translate this into hope. Your sons, but look at the implication for the future. Your heirs, if your sons. You see, he's always thinking, promoting hope. Children, heirs, sonship, hope. And once he starts on hope at this point in this passage, he doesn't quit to the end of the chapter. He puts us into the orbit of hope in chapter 8. Color the whole rest of the chapter, hope. Hope owns this chapter. And last week, we kind of put the first block of hope in as we talked about creation. Kind of an odd place, maybe, for Paul to turn to creation in the first place. You've got this great glory to come. And let me tell you about it. The creation is waiting for it. It's, it's stunning. It's shocking uh, that he would turn to the creation. How momentous is this future glory? All creation groans and eagerly waits for this future glory. When we are transformed, all creation will be transformed. And so our final transformation is literally earth shattering, universe shattering. The universe will be given an extreme makeover in that last day when the new humanity is revealed in glory. That's how momentous our future glory is. That's how certain this future glory is. All creation awaits it. Oh, it's just hardly can talk about it. If I could do a backflip, maybe I would. OK, but it's glorious. So every part of the universe is craning its neck. That's the language in anticipation of our future glory. It's like all of creation is in the stands and it's all stomping in the stands, just roaring and thundering, waiting for the sons of God to come on the field. That's the picture of creation here. So let's move then as we talk about this hope, this this God of hope, these scriptures of hope, this glorious chapter of hope and the hope that even creation is bound up in. Let's go from creation's hope or creation's transformation to our own transformation, our own personal transformation. Last week, we talked primarily about creation's transformation. Let's talk about ours. Ours is prior and the creation depends upon our transformation. Now, Paul puts it in at least three different basic ways in this chapter. And we'll, we'll look at each one of these. First, he describes it as a change of the body. Then we'll see how he, he puts it as conformity to Christ. And then thirdly, we'll see how he puts it as a communion with his glory or sharing in his glory. So it's a change in our body which is a conformity to Christ, which is a sharing in his glory or a, uh, a, a communion in his glory. Now, to talk about the bodily change, if you back up to verse 11, he says, If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So here's the idea. God raised Christ from the dead by the spirit. Now that spirit dwells in you and through that spirit, he will one day raise you as well. So there's he's connecting Christ's resurrection and our future resurrection. But notice he puts it this way in verse 11. He will give life to your mortal body. 
speaking mortal here of not having immortality, but he will give life to that body, which by itself is simply mortal. And then if you stick with this body uh, image, we read in verse 23 of this same chapter that we await our adoption as sons, specifically the end of verse 23, the redemption of our bodies, the redemption of our bodies. So he doesn't just redeem our souls, does he? As we saw last week, it's not right to say the only things that last are the souls of men and the word of God. No, the bodies of men and women will last because the bodies of men and women will be transformed. Our very bodies will be changed and then will last forever. And I'm thinking, what kind of body is that going to be? You know, I think it's Kia, you know, 100,000 mile, 10 year warranty. What kind of warranty is going to be given to us <laughs> when you've got a body that lasts forever? You know, how would it read? What would you say? You know, uh, it gives us this warranty guaranteed. No part will ever change from working perfectly ever, 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 ever. All parts good for eternity. You know, the redemption of the body. Everything that we have gotten so familiar with will be no more. There will be an indestructible power and glory and beauty and perfection in our bodies. So this future transformation is it's emphasized in this passage. It's bodily transformation. Everything, our whole being is transformed. So change in the body. But secondly, the description that we read in verses 28 through 30 focuses on conformity to Christ. Conformity to Christ. Remember verse 29. He's predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So in terms of this redemption of our bodies, basically all that's happening is we're becoming like his body. See, he's already undergone that change. Whatever happened in Christ's resurrection, in the transformation of his body, was simply a guarantee and a down payment, a picture of what's going to happen to our bodies as well. We will perfectly share his new humanity inside and out. We will be like him. You remember Mary Poppins when uh, she's first getting to know the kids and she takes out her her tape measure and she measures them and it measures not their height, but it measures their character. Right. And she measures the little girl. She measures the little boy. And then they say, well, measure yourself. And she puts them off and then file. OK, we'll measure me. And she measures herself. She says, ah, just what I thought. Practically perfect in every way. Right. <clears throat> well, that's, of course, just cute and funny, but um, it's going to be real at the resurrection. It's going to be real. And it's not just practically God will change us. Then he will measure us with his measurement and he'll say absolutely perfect in every way. How could that be? God will say of me, you're absolutely perfect in every way. Not by my doing, not by my earning, but by the precious work of Jesus Christ. And that will be forever. Perfect spiritually, perfect physically, perfect relationally. 
all our relationships will be conformed to Christ. And isn't it wonderful that he calls him the firstborn among many brethren? Here's the sonship language again from verses 14 and 15. Your sons, therefore heirs. And now we are brothers to Christ and he's a brother to us. And again, ladies, remember, this is the language of the chief heir, the, the, the oldest son. And it doesn't leave you out. It includes you. There's no male and female in Christ. All the privileges of that male sonship is yours. So we're not leaving you out. We're like drawing you in and saying, sister, you're right along with us. You're a brother now. <laughs> OK, <laughs> we're all brothers now. We're all brothers in that in that sense of, of inheriting. So he puts resurrection, though, here in terms of birth, doesn't he? He says he's the firstborn among many brethren. Well, the like. The, the likeness of, of birth, it, it seems like you don't exist and then you're born into this world and you're alive, you're there. And so it, that's an image for resurrection. So he was just the first resurrected of many brothers to be resurrected. The first son of all the sons to be resurrected. They will be similarly born, similarly resurrected. And notice he is predestined so that He would just be the firstborn. See, it's set from the beginning. It never was planned except that he would just be the firstborn among many. I mean, our our resurrection was as good as accomplished in eternity and through Christ. In fact, it was done for us. He didn't need to come and be resurrected. Why did he need to do that? He's the eternal son of God. He came to die and be resurrected so that new humanity could be one day resurrected. It was all for us. It was all to bring us this glory, all to change our bodies. And that's why John just practically breaks down in chapter 3 of 1 John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. See it? See? See? And such we are. Beloved, we're God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. You can't see it yet. You can't see that glory, but when He comes, when He comes, we're going to be just like Him. So, change in body, conformity to Christ, and then you, you catch the language of this communion in His glory. Verse 17, He says, We will share in His glory. He says, we'll suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Or it's described as the glory to be revealed to us, not external to us. But that means the glory that will engulf us and embrace us and transform us. And then in the language of verse 30, it's done as a verb. We will be glorified. So the very glory of Christ we share at that point. Again, I've said it before, it's not the glory of his deity. No, we're not deified. But all the glory that his humanity has, he accomplished and purchased and and won it so that we would have that glory. It's our glory that he won. And that's why in Colossians 3, verse 4, it can say, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. With him in that glory. Or listen to this language that sounds so intimate, almost to be blasphemous. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He means it too. You have the glory. And you think, but I don't deserve Yeah, that's the point. You don't deserve it. But I haven't been glorious in any way. I'm a sin- that's exactly right. He doesn't just forgive you of your sins. He gives you the whole kingdom. He gives you and shares with you his glory. He puts his arms around you and says, you're my brother. You're my sister. I share everything with you. Even though we had sinned so grievously against him. Just a couple of applications to mention for your consideration as we come to the table. The first is John says in that passage where he says, see what kind of love the Father has given us. He says, when we have that hope, when we are fixed on Christ's coming, he says, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Here's one of the keys to your purity and holiness is to have the strongest vision of hope of the coming of Jesus Christ and what that will mean for you. To be always excited about it. For it to move you emotionally. And I might ask you the question, when is the last time it moved you emotionally and began to govern how you thought about your day because the glory and light of the coming of Christ is shining into your circumstances. That's just to be your regular life. Regular life. He says, he who has this hope purifies himself, which means if you don't have this hope, you won't purify yourself. Life won't be straight for you. It'll be upside down. The wrong things will be important and you'll give yourself to idols more freely because you won't be fixed upon the true glory that is yours to come. You won't be able to let sin go. In the words of that that little song, nothing compares to the promise I have in you. No sin, no offer of another God or an idol has anything to compare to the promise that I have in you. Well, that promise is bound up in the coming of Christ. If you have that hope, you purify yourself. Then at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, which is the chapter of resurrection, and that's where he talks about how this, immor- this mortal will put on immortality and the like. And he describes the details of the body that we, it's sown in weakness, but in that day it'll be, re- it'll reap in power. It'll, it'll be harvested in power. It was, Reaped, uh, I'm sorry, it was uh, sown in, in uh, uh, humility, but it will be harvested in glory. And at the end of that chapter, he says, be steadfast. In, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain in the Lord. All of this talk for 57 verses about resurrection. And he finally says, therefore, you be steadfast, immovable, because living a life of love is never wasted. Not one minute of it. Your work counts. It is important. There's nothing worth living for but love. Always be abounding in love. That's what the resurrection means. And then finally, the last thing. Having this hope is one of the proofs that we love Him. It's one of the ways that that we devote ourselves to Him. 
Paul is able to say in 2 Corinthians 4 that he's waiting for the crown of righteousness which God will give to him. And he says, to all those who eagerly wait for him. Well, by God's grace, don't you want to be one who is eagerly waiting for him? Or as Hebrews 9.28 puts it, he's coming for those that eagerly wait for him. I mean, that's what it says literally. He's coming for those that eagerly wait. That's like, that must be the way you describe a Christian. (laughs) Or like Paul puts it with the Thessalonians, he says, you turn from idols to serve the living God and to wait for Christ. (laughs) There's There's your Christian life. Basically, you could say it in one word. You're waiting for him. Everything is in that context. All of the word is cast in hope. The big word is eschatological, last times. And there are theologians that talk about Paul. Is, he talks about hope more than anything. Everything is about hope. <clears throat> Can you imagine uh, David uh, Compton serving six months and being in the thick of fire and not knowing, Becky, if he's going to live or die? And he comes home, and she and the kids nor anybody else is at the airport. And he looks around, and everybody else is. He gets a ride home from somebody, gets a taxi, pulls up to his house, and he walks in. I'm home. Hi, Dad. She's reading a book. She just looks up and says, "Oh, hey, hon." You know, that didn't happen. (laughs) Because of the love, the love, the devotion, everything's focused on when is daddy coming home? You see, their whole life wasn't, it's kind of defined by that. When is daddy coming home? And that defines our life. And so, Paul, talking about the Lord's Supper. There, here he goes, talking about hope again, okay? Wouldn't you know? He says this in chapter 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we have this table in hope, in hope. We're sitting there eating, saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And if you don't know Christ and you don't have this hope, then life is dark beyond comparison. Not to have the light of this one who's sure to come. And who transforms every day with that bright hope. Will you not trust Him who has died for sinners to give them this hope? Let us pray. Oh Lord, we praise You. We honor You. Lord, we would give our lives afresh to be steadfast and movable. Abounding in the love that You have shown to us in sharing with us all that You have earned. 
thank you that we will be transformed completely and fully into the image of Christ and share your glory forever. We can't imagine it. Lord, may this brighten every day of our life. May it purify us. May we walk in glad obedience. For Jesus' sake, amen.